Our speaker this evening is Mark Schell, the Irving Babbitt Professor of Comparative Literature and Professor of English and American Literature and Language at Harvard University. He also serves as professor in the undergraduate literature concentration and in the graduate program in History of American Civilization. A John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Fellow, Professor Schell will be speaking to us in part about his recent book, Islandology, a fast-paced, fact-filled comparative essay in critical topography and cultural geography that cuts across different cultures and argues for a world of islands. Writing in view of the melting of the world's great ice islands, Professor Schell's Islandology shows not only new ways that we think about islands, but also why and how we think by means of them. Please join me in welcoming Professor Schell to the Athenaeum. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for that introduction very, very much. One goal of today's talk will be to incorporate and transcend the problems, my problems, hence yours now, of hearing a lecture meant to have illustrations, many of which are maps, are cartographs, so that you may hear me struggling verbally, trying to describe something that you're not seeing. <laughs> this does bring me to the title of my talk, Speaking at the Shore. Um, I think now of the title meaning several things at once. One has to do with uh, a discourse that has to do with the shore, the line where the water and the land meet, where they're both the same as each other and distinguished from each other. But I guess I am thinking now of that uh, great Greek, ancient Greek philosopher and rhetorician Demosthenes, who went to the shoreline to declaim um, in order to overcome a speaking difficulty he had, Demosthenes was a stutterer. And by speaking above the sound of the water moving the sand and the rocks, uh, was able to incorporate and transcend the speaking difficulty to the point where he, of all people, he, the disabled speaker, became the great rhetorician. Um, I'll come back to ancient Greek rhetoric and to what I will call the ancient Greek understanding of what an island is in just a moment when I speak about Pericles and the idea of the Athenian nation state. It seems appropriate to be talking about Athens in the Athenaeum. <laughs> if there were time for a personal introduction, it might begin as follows. Um, though born in a small town north of Montreal on an island, born in Shibugamu, I moved while quite young to the island of Montreal and lived near the Lachine Rapids. One might call them something like the headwaters of the St. Lawrence River, the mouth into North America from the point of view of Franco-Americans 
anyways. It was a good place uh, to build a city. Most cities, most great cities, I would say, are built in precisely that spot. Um, Plunkin Island at the mouth of a river going into the sea. Put the parliament there. Westminster in London. It used to be Thorny Island, the palace built there by King Canute, but I'm not going to talk about London much this instant, but just to remind you that in fact our city, Boston, um, is pretty much follows the pattern. Uh, Plunka City at the mouth of a river, uh, the Charles, um, filled with islands. It's possible to hide some of the history of the city or its islandic quality looking both outwards and inwards to the continent. You can hide it by filling in the rivers that surrounded Westminster. One of them, by the way, is called um, Scholar's Sewer. (laughs) And there are jokes because it runs from underneath Buckingham Palace down into the Thames underneath Parliament so that people say that the feces of the Queen runs under Parliament. (laughs) You may get an awful lot of Canadian jokes from me, but as you've guessed already, I'm not from the regular part of Canada, but from the French part. The Boston Islands are doubly interesting to me in terms of what will become part of today's talk because um, part of today's talk will look at the work of Ingmar Bergman, a kind of typical Scandinavian Islandic artist. And Bergman was uh, mightily influenced by two diseases. Bergman was very sick throughout his life, kind of psychosomatic, a sickness involving a commixture of the body and the mind at the same time. Um, During his time, Eugene O'Neill was setting his plays with a similar theme um, on the Boston Islands. East Boston, as I'm sure you know, was the island where Eugene O'Neill set his great play, Morning Becomes Electra. Um, and the uh, psychoanalyst, uh, Cetus, the father of the man who uh, is supposed to have starred in Goodwill Hunting. You remember the mad genius who gets into Harvard and MIT? They leave out a lot of the story. Um, his works on split personality. Um, were mightily influential too. Mostly in Scandinavia, Freud hated him. So we have, as it were, um, a Boston base. Um, We'll be leaving that fairly soon. As soon as I ask and answer the question, um, this will be difficult, by the way. Um, What is geography and what happened to it anyways? Um, you may hear from me sometimes words about my family. It's not because I'm proud of my family. It's because I learn from them. So one of my family members is my wife, and my wife is a philosopher, and she's written seven books about Immanuel Kant. And so in order to stay married to her for 46 years... I had to read the complete works of Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher. Most of his books are about geography. 
He didn't earn his living being a philosopher. It wasn't his books on perpetual peace. It was his works on geography, per se. And he defines geography appropriately and influentially as well as having to do with the interrelationship between the physical world, call it nature, and the cultural world, call it for our purposes art or literature. So on the one hand, the physical world, nature, on the other hand, the topic that in part I've been asked to come and speak about. In fact, I'm speaking now about the link between what's natural and what's purportedly not natural. So, if we think of this linkage in terms of modern American thought, you have on the one, time, on the one hand the hard sciences like um, geology, earth and planetary sciences, um, maybe certain aspects of environmental sciences. On the other hand, you have human anthropology, psychology, and so forth. But in the olden days, most of those fields as such did not exist, or if they did, they didn't exist in the same value-free way that we think of them as being now. Once upon a time, there was this great field, German geography, and another great field, British geography. British geography was palpably and brilliantly in the service of the British Empire. Um, German geography was not palpably in the service of the German Empire because at the time Germany didn't have an empire. But Germany wanted an empire a whole lot. The Germans developed, as most geographers do, something like what I would call a school of geographic determinism. That school says that it matters where you live. If you live where it's sunny, you'll get black skin. If you live where there's corn, you'll get double eyelids. Um, if you live in Boston, you'll get smart. <laughs> I, 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 you told me about this audience. <laughs> Actually, that's not so funny. Um, because um, this school of geographic determinism was used by the German ge geographers in order to promulgate not only propaganda during the Second World War, uh, but actually science that would work. So when World War II, when I'm now getting to the story of what happened to geography, after World War II, it was decided to dismiss the departments of geography from the American universities. Now, this doesn't often happen. About 97% of the departments of geography in the, in the United States were closed. Some people say they were closed because somebody didn't like how fat a professor was. Some people say that there were too many gay professors in the Harvard Department of Geography, and the president of the university didn't like gay men, and so he closed down the Department of Geography. There's always some truth to these anecdotes. But when an entire country pretty much closes down a field, you can be sure that there's more to it than that. What happened, therefore, to geography? Well, many of the geographers went to work 
for the then new CIA. So you could say that the CIA became, or it wanted to become, something like what the British Civil Service had been. I'm not saying that America has run its quasi-empire as well as the British used to run their empire. That would be a really stupid thing for me to say. What I am saying is that the departments of geography were emptied and that many of the people went there. The rest went towards what I have called the value-free sciences. So a value-laden science would be numismatics. A value-neutral science would be economics as practice in the University of Chicago now. Everything reduced to numbers, the belief being that numbers, the zeros, the ones and the zeros and so forth, are somehow or other not only universal, but match the workings themselves of the universe. Um, so numismatics gives way to value-free economics. Human geography gives way to geology and, psych and psychology. And in both cases, in all such cases, the discipline is split. So if there were a question, what happened to geography or what it was, that's how the answers would go. For quirky individualistic reasons and grand military reasons, the universities of the world, actually mostly of this country, reshape themselves to the point where the only people still practicing the older style of geography, the relationship between culture and the physical world in a systematic way would be, you guessed it, professors of comparative literature. <laughs> this bug the hell out of my son, Jacob. Because Jacob, unlike his father, decided that he wanted to be a geographer and you know, there are um, 4,300 major colleges and universities in the United States and only about 80 departments of geography. So it's really hard. I mean, it's a lot harder to get a job in a department of geography than it is to get a job, say, in a department of English. Has anybody here ever tried to get a job in a department of English? I hope not. <laughs> I want to give another example now of what I've called the link between nature and culture. And I'm going to do this by casting conceptually a picture up on the screen. We can do this. I conjure up for you today. Do you remember how Hamlet opens up? Hamlet opens up with the conjuring up of a ghost. It's at a shoreline. The ghost comes out of the shoreline and says, you've got to do this, Hamlet. Hamlet means something like Little Island, I suppose. 
Literally, that's what Hamlet means. Some people say that it's like Porky Pig, Little Ham. Other, other, other people say that it's, uh, it's from the Danish-Latin word omelette, meaning uh, stupid. And all of, these other ex- all of these other explanations work. The stupid one is probably the best one, because Hamlet is nothing if not good at pretending to be stupid or being stupid. <clears throat> Up here, then, imagine a map of an island called Utopia. Once upon a time, Utopia, that island, was not an island. It was turned into an island when human beings came and cut the peninsula, decapitated the head, turned the head into an island separate from the main, as it were. Thomas More, you know, who um, wrote Utopia, uh, got into trouble with the king. And the king um, separated his head from his body and stuck his head on a pike on the bridge going over the Thames River, which I've already mentioned, uh, not that far from Parliament, um, in fact. And this seems to have made an impression on young Shakespeare, for you know that skull scene in Hamlet uh, when Yorick unburies the skull? when now it's not the ghost, but the skeleton that, as it were, speaks quite chapfallen. Um, that is the, well, but imagine now, next to the map, another map, this time Holbein's redrawing of the map, which shows clearly that the map is a skull. So that one, what one is looking at at the map of Utopia is also the brain of Thomas More. If there were an image to capture, as it were, this linkage between the the diagram of the natural world and a diagram of the mental world, it might well reside in such an image as that. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But I would like now to ask and pretend to answer some questions about islandology. I did not make up that word. It was made up by the CIA. And there's one thing that an immigrant likes to do, it's to be nice to the CIA. The philosopher John Venn used to say that just as there are islands in the world, I mean physical islands, don't ask me what that is now, there are islands of meaning so that there's an intersecting of meanings the way there's an intersecting of space in an archipelago. But I would like, on a more simple level, to give a few answers as to what an island is. These are not optionally different answers. This is not an SAT test. Um, The French, I'm from Quebec, but it's North American Quebec, so we hate the French. Um, But you know, the French are really good at this sort of thing, so give credit where credit is due. French science and French humanities as well 
more often than not, will define an island not by its shoreline, but by its weather space. The word eel very often refers to that. Um, the Greek word for island, nesos, doesn't mean island. It means something like distant place that you don't quite know what it is, and maybe it's a peninsula. So you have a word like Peloponnesus in Greece. You remember where Greece is. It's that thing that doesn't belong to Europe, but maybe does. It, it sticks down like a peninsula. We can't decide whether to decapitate it or not. Whoops. The Peloponnesus was decapitated, of course, when the canal at Corinth was cut. One of the things that the Greeks and the Persians used to do a lot was turn peninsulas into islands and islands into peninsulas. They liked to do that a lot almost as part of their way of thinking about the world and the relationship between its holes and its parts. May I come now to the definition of island in English because that's our language and our language, one's own language is always the strangest. So if, if, if this were a French audience and I were speaking French, I, I would make the French seem really weird. And if this were a Greek audience, I would make the Greek seem really weird, and that's not hard to do. Um, but English is actually stranger and more interesting than the other languages. The word island in English has two diametrically polar opposite meanings so that the full meaning of island, the full logic of meaning, is dialectical in the sense that it comes only from the confrontation between two polar opposites, which, I'm going to use this phrase for the third time, absorb and rise above the contradiction. On the one hand, there is the old Danish-Scandinavian-Anglo-Saxon meaning of island, which is the place where the water and the land meet and mix. That's a, that's a usual understanding of what an island is, and then you follow that. And if you get back to where you started from, then that's an island. The question of circumambulation, by the way, is an interesting one. I'm sure you know that it doesn't work. When Thoreau, in writing about Walden, took that definition of island in its own right. He said, well, I can walk around Walden Pond that way, so Walden Pond must be an island. And if any of you now were to walk out to the Charles and start walking around it, you would come back to where you started from, eventually. <laughs> no, no, it's very important to understand this. You would come back to where you started from. You would be walking around the entire shoreline of North and South America and all its rivers, but you would get back there. So you mightn't want to say that circumambulation itself is a decent definition of island, or you might. So anyways, that's the first English definition, place where the water and the soil mix. Or to put it otherwise, where there are two different states of matter meeting. I hope you see why I say two different states of matter. I'm still on the first definition here. Because an iceberg is attached to the bottom of the sea at a certain point, 
but it's of the same material as the water that surrounds it. The iceberg and an island are essentially the same, therefore, in some of the northern languages of Canada. Remember, I mentioned I'm from Shabugamu, so I, I speak Cree. So if, you want, if any of you want to ask about any of the Algonconian languages, you've finally come to the right place. Um, so it's not just a matter of different materials, but it's a matter of different states of matter. Um, molten rock surrounding solid rock, melted water surrounding solid water, and so forth, all seem to fall into the first definition. The second definition of island in English is the one that's the common sense one now. It doesn't come into English until the Renaissance. It doesn't come into English until the time that Shakespeare is writing and that the Spanish Armada has been defeated. And Britain is beginning to develop a theory of islandology which will match the interests of its empire and will serve to define in many ways what Britain is. Britain, you remember, is a floating island. You know the song, I'm not going to sing this, but I'm Canadian, so I can. Rule Britannia, Britannia rules the waves, and Britons never, never, never shall be slaves. It wasn't a comment on the American Revolution, which from the British point of view seemed to be a revolution in order to promulgate slavery. If people say that, it's not quite true. Um, but it does take the idea of a floating or non-floating island to an extreme in the tradition, say, of Thomas Hobbes in his Leviathan, who doesn't say that a nation state is a ship of state or like one. I'm sorry, he doesn't say that a nation state is like a ship of state. He says that it is a ship of state. And you should think of it as being both natural and human, humanoid at the same time. But going back to the second definition, it's dialectical opposition. I haven't lost track of that. An island is defined in terms of where the water and the land separate. That's what we usually think of as the shore or the beach. We don't think of the mud there, the Adam or Adam, who's there speaking at the shore. We think instead of the separation. So the full English understanding of island in the English language comes only, this is the transcendence of opposites to which I was referring earlier, comes only from dealing with the contradiction between the two. They are contradictory, but they're not fully contradictory. I have referred to the British Empire, and I have reminded you that Britain thinks of itself as a floating ship. What is an island, after all, but a ship? This is, I think, the main theme of Herman Melville's novels and his quasi-documentary travel literature. His quasi-documentary travel literature during the first part of his life when he could make some money from his writing um, 
have to do with his trips to the South Seas. He begins to write documentaries. Quite brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Then he decides that he wants to do like docudramas based partly in those voyages, but partly in fiction. He writes real failures like Moby Dick, a total disaster in the marketplace. He was a worse failure than Thoreau. If you pick up on the fact that I'm going to be mentioning all these failures, it's because there's something to be learned from that. Pride is a bad thing to have. Um, by the time Melville is writing Moby Dick, he's quite clear about what Britain is. Early on, there had been a conflict inside Europe itself as to whether the seas were open or closed. In Roman times, you know, nobody owned the open seas. If Rome wanted to own the islands in the Mediterranean or the sea rights, it had to conquer the entire shoreline of the Mediterranean. It had to turn the Mediterranean not into a pond, but into an island of water surrounded by a sea of land. I'm trying not to speak metaphorically here, but to take seriously what the Arabs say when they talk about the camel as a ship of the desert. Um, on the one hand was um, John Selden, who held that the land was yours as far as you could shoot a cannon. He was English. And on the other hand, there was the Dutch Grotius, who said, no, 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 uh, we had to have other laws than those. Um, closed sea and the open sea, Britain has always defined itself in terms of what I've called uh, the closed sea for itself. Where a British naval ship was, there is Britain. If there are any captains of American military vessels here, we could discuss whether the American military goes by Grotius or by Selden, but afterwards. Um, I'm going to mention one more ideological facet of the logical differences among the countries I've been mentioning, and that would be Germany once again. Germany, unlike England, is not an island country, but it wanted to be one. It had two models in terms of which Germany defined itself in the 19th century and the 18th century too. One was ancient Greece, and the other was then modern Scandinavia. Both of those are island cultures. In fact, so much so that when the Persians were about to take Athens, the Athenians got together. This is Pericles' great contribution to world political theory and said, where our ships are, there is Athens. Understand, he dislocated 
the country from its geographic setting. It would be as if the founding fathers of the United States said, it doesn't matter where the United States is, it's where the Constitution is. We can move it from Washington to Toronto, um, to Philadelphia, but we take it with us, it's a piece of paper. We don't need to defend a spot of land. It's a very interesting, dynamic move, quite different for example, from the notion of the Hebrew Commonwealth, which was very much tied to the land because it was said the land was given by God. And different too from the older notions of Greece, which held that in some ways the Greeks, some of them were autochthonous beings who were born from the soil. That's what autochthony means. Um, autochthon is the French word for Indian. Um, the people born of the soil who really belong here. Um, the Germans, as I were saying, or meaning to say, were tied heavily to the Greek idea to the point where they wanted to become Greek. What I mean by that is their poets like Hölderlin developed theories that allowed them to write German but in Greek syntax. Their dramatists, like Goethe, allowed them to write plays in which an ancient Greek woman like Helen of Troy could appear and speak German, but in Greek lexis and syntax. Um, and the idea of the German linguists was that the German and the Greek languages were one, so that the new world would be German, Greek, and Icelandic. A teacher of mine, whom I got to know only in the latter stages of her life, uh, E.M. Butler, wrote a great book about this subject called The Tyranny of Greece Over Germany. And I think she chose the word tyranny rightly. By the end of the Enlightenment and the beginning of the Romantic period, the 19th century, some Germans, for various reasons, were getting tired of this, and so they began to look for their spiritual home not to the south, in the Mediterranean, that almost landlocked sea, but instead to the north, in the Baltic, that almost landlocked sea. By the way, if Gibraltar is at the mouth of the Mediterranean, the only way out of the Mediterranean, he who guards Gibraltar guards the way in and out of the world, where, those her where the Hercules of Pillars are. The Hercules of Pillars, that's what, where we got the dollar sign from. Um, the counterpart to Gibraltar, to the Hercules of Pillars, to the dollar sign in the Baltic would be Elsinore. Elsinore, the uh, Strait of Orison, the Orison Sound. Um, which is where Hamlet is set. Uh, Hamlet being a Danish play, which serves in many ways to relocate the center of civilization from the south and the ancient world to the north. The Germans really love this idea. First, they love the idea that England doesn't have a literature of its own. After all, the idea here is that the, the first work of English literature, 
is not English, it's Danish. Duh, Beowulf. Oh sure, some people might say now that Beowulf was written about Denmark, but in Anglo-Saxon, and they may say that Anglo-Saxon has nothing to do with the language of the Saxons, which doesn't quite make sense. Um, but in those days, and still now, people say that in fact Beowulf was written in the Danish language then. It was translated under the aegis of King Alfred. I'm sorry if you're getting too many facts. <laughs> I apologize for that, but you know how it is. I don't have pictures, so I have to do facts. Um, on the one hand, then, the original work of English literature is not English, it's German. I mean Danish. Um, and the original and the great work of English literature, let's face it, is not English, it's Danish. In fact, one could go further to say that there had really been no history of Denmark written since the time of Saxo Grammaticus in, in the 12th century. The only history of Denmark ever written in those 300 years was by William Shakespeare. And by the way, it's a drop-dead brilliant as a history. It happens to be an extremely good work of literature too, as my colleagues in the Department of English would say. But as I've already told you, I'm not speaking as a professor of English today. I'm speaking as a professor of comparative literature, which I've called geography. <laughs> Wagner goes to the Baltic and says, home is here. Um, I'm going to set my plays in such a place as this. Um, I have an idea. Let's uh, find a river. Um, let's have some beings that live half in the water and half in the land, sort of mud, where the water becomes a land and the land doesn't become the water. We'll call the people who live there the Rhine Maidens. We'll have a bad dwarf-like Jew there. We'll call them Aubrecht. Um, and we will actually start off there from a single chord. This is the beginning of the Ring of the Nibelung. Um, arguably the most influential opera of the century. Um, which develops for Wagner precisely there. Now let me say something now, not about the location where these works are set, but actually the location where they're staged. Because if we're to deal seriously with literature now or works of drama, we have to talk about the stage itself. So I'm gonna talk about four different kinds of stages. Now this is a beautiful room and a great deal of thought went into this room. And I find the acoustics pretty good. Although, are you able to hear me okay? Good. For the Greeks, the theater mattered. The architecture of it, it mattered that you saw the sun go up and the sun go down. The sun didn't only light the stage, the sun represented itself as sun. When somebody in a Greek play says, oh look, the sun is rising, he's not only speaking of, of, of fiction, but it's a document. It's, it's as if the play is a documentary play documenting the actual sun that's there. Needless to say, the Greek amphitheater is circular and it's called an island, which you would expect from such an insular, island-laden culture. 
I earlier spoke of English and mentioned Shakespeare, so we do have to talk about Shakespeare's innovation, architecturally speaking, when it comes to insular stage, st stage work. Shakespeare's theatre <laughs> is peninsular. You remember, there's a sort of round, the there's a round stage, it's connected to the back by the isthmus, which is kind of what it's called. There are two pillars, called the Pillars of Hercules, which hold up the sky, or the firmament. Um, Shakespeare calls his theater the globe. Now, there's a flag that flies above the globe. It's a flag showing Hercules, who has the globe on his shoulders. It's almost as if Shakespeare is doing, is doing the bidding of the geographers for them, or for us. You can tell I want my son to get tenure, I hope. <laughs> it's almost like that. Um, it's as if he were speaking directly to Archimedes, the great Greek thinker, politician, strategist, probably one of the cleverest guys ever. Archimedes said, give me a place to stand and I'll move the world and I'll move the globe. What he meant by that has something to do with calculus, levers and fulcrums. But of course, the trick to what he's saying is that there was no place to stand for him because there's no space for him to stand out in space. This was step one almost for him in developing a theory of mathematics that really beats me because he does it all without the zero. Shakespeare reads this as a little boy just at the time when he's seeing this star that's been burning in the sky day and night. I mean, he's six or seven years old. The poor kid is traumatized. He sees a star going on and on and on and on. There's this astronomer, Tycho Brahe, who's working on the island of Heaven. Have any of you been there? Which is about 50 yards from Elsinore. Um... And Shakespeare is saying to himself, this is the little boy, he's saying to himself, there's another way to do this. I'm going to have a place to stand. This is going to be my place. And what the grown-up little boy does is he becomes really the world's first geographically global writer. He writes by far about more places on the globe. And for him, the word globe comes to mean not only the earth itself, which he clearly understands as being round, as most people did by his time. But he also associates it with the other meanings of globe, one of which is brain. For our conception of the world is our brain's conception of it. When Hamlet has brainish comprehensions, when he talks about his globe, he's referring to his skull, but he's also referring to the theater in which he's speaking, and to the great wide globe itself, of which the members of the audience, of which all members of audiences, everywhere in the world, even this one, are members. You remember Shakespeare's last play, they say, The Tempest? It's an interesting play. 
For our purposes, it's interesting because although islands have names in almost all works of literature, the island in the Tempest has no name. It's everywhere and nowhere. It could just as soon be the whole wide earth un understood as an, as an island in the way that the planets can be understood as a, a three-dimensional, more or less, uh, archipelago. So far then, a couple of stages. One insular, one peninsular. The third would be Wagner's stage. Wagner makes a cut between the audience and the stage. If Shakespeare demands that the audience participates, demands that they react to the bear baiting, requires at the end of the tempest that the audience clap in order that the wind fill the sail so that Prospero can get back to the mainland. If Shakespeare insists on a connection that's physical and palpable between the island and the mainland, no man is an island. Wagner does the opposite. He erects a, 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 mystical, um, a mystical abyss, abgrund, um, where the orchestra goes. It looks an awful lot like, um, you know when you go to the orchestra in Boston, you're sort of separated and there's like a pit and all that. Like that's, that's Wagner and German. The Nazis love that. German music ruled absolutely. German science ruled. German geography ruled. German mathematics ruled. I'm not saying anything Surprising, and I've talked about the CIA and the utter collapse of the whole field as well. There's a reaction against the mystical Abgrund, and that begins to develop a, a stage un understood as a kind of chamber stage. If there could be a huge orchestra, so there could be like quartets. If there could be a huge play, like Shakespeare's, it seemed to represent the history of the world almost. The triple pillar of the world is what Anthony and Cleopatra is about. Transformed, Shakespeare says, to a strumpet's fool, Cleopatra. Well, if you make a very small play and fill it with, I don't know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Then you don't have a play that's about the whole world, but you have a, ch a chamber play you have a new kind of theater, new kind of architectural re requirements. The family almost becomes the subject matter. And that's where one would come to Sweden. Now, my book, Islandology, is not about Scandinavia. I want to make that clear. But there's a kind of author who doesn't really like to revisit things very much, especially because I'm getting old and I only have another 32 years to write or so. My mother-in-law, Sophie, uh, is just about to turn 100 and she just published a little book. So I, I have these burdensome role models. I'm not going to tell you about my mother. 
That's my mother-in-law. Um, Scandinavia um, has a different theatrical tradition. I hinted at it earlier when I mentioned that Bergman, who I think directed 170 plays, uh, was much influenced by O'Neill. But Bergman was more influenced by August Strindberg, whose first works uh, were written in the Stockholm archipelago, who, whenever he went crazy or lunatic, always did it on the islands, whose documentary novel and documentary short stories are set on the islands, and whose famous, very famous work, Ghost Sonata and some others, um, show one way or another uh, the great painting um, Island of Death. I wish I could show that because it's, it's so striking. He made four copies of that um, and um, uh, Hitler owned one of them and um, Bergman's family and actually all the Swedish families had a copy of this. I mean, Sweden was neutral during the war, which is how it was that Bergman came to, you know, spend a lot of time during the 30s in Germany on an island, but I won't get to that. I mentioned Saxo Gram Grammaticus, who defines Scandinavia in terms of the relationship between the land and the water. If you've ever seen any Danish or Swedish de detective stories on TV, or if you read their novels, what you see is this, that they keep trying to bury dead people and the dead people keep coming up because the mud freezes and unfreezes. It's just like Hamlet. It is Hamlet. You try and bury the old king, he comes back. You can't tell for sure whether he's alive or dead. Do any of you remember how Hamlet op opens up? It goes something like, who goes there? No, you answer me first. Uh, say, 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 say the password, and the password is, is um, long live the king. It's an interesting password, because if you're Canadian, you know that that's only half the password. The full password is, this is a footnote, the full password is, the king is dead, long live the king. And if you breathe between the two parts, the king is dead, long live the king, then you get killed because the problem of succession is being raised by you. I wish I were joking about this, but we do have to understand that political problems, all, all of our political problems come out of Scandinavian tradition. I'd like to say that democracy began with the Greeks or that it's all Iceland or, 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 or wasn't Benjamin Franklin wonderful or gee, the words of, um, the Declaration of Independence are stirring. But in fact, it would seem that long before the Magna Carta, long before all of that, the Danish and the Swedes and the Norwegians, to the extent that they were playing with ideas of democracies, were establishing conferences or conventions, always on islands in the Baltic. Um, that were more or less democratically assembled. Most of the kings were elected to office. The assemblies, by the way, were called things, T-H-I-N-G, 
So if you um, name any of the um, parliaments of Iceland, Denmark, Norway, Denmark, and so on, they all have the word thing in them or ting. Ting means island in the middle of nowhere where you go to solve problems by taking a vote, or if you can't do it that way, then you have a fight, and the guy who wins uh, takes all. So Hamlet, I'm sorry to keep coming back to Hamlet, but I'm figuring that um, most of us know him. You know it's very hard to be a professor of literature now because in our classes we don't know who's read things, like peace porridge, hot peace porridge, cold peace porridge in the pot, nine days old. Our students don't know that. Um, the only work of literature they know in common is uh, The Simpsons. <laughs> so we learn The Simpsons, not because, you know, The Simpsons is so great, or maybe it, 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 it is. It's because there's like a common text in the room, and that's how I'm using Hamlet. It's not that I'm a professor of literature here. It's like The Simpsons. <laughs> um, it's in that spirit. I suppose, that I take up, um, are you the timekeeper? Could you let me know when I'm, five minutes. It's his fault, not my fault. Um, I choose Ingmar Bergman as somebody to speak about for four and a half minutes, partly because, near as I can tell, Bergman A is not untypical of the Swedish, but rather typical, and B, he illustrates almost everything that one has to say about the relationship between nature and culture when it comes to islands of, of, of the Scandinavian sort, a sort which deeply matters. Um, as you know, the Swedish Vikings from Gotland, the island in, in the middle of the Baltic, uh, went down to the Black Sea, where presumably the Greek Electra had been, went down into Greece and traded through there. Uh, two or three of Bergman's uh, movies, in fact, are set in, me in medieval times, just when this trade and this military expansion is going on. Bergman, as you know, wanted to set his plays in Sweden and his movies, but sometimes he wanted to set them in old Swedish colonies, for example, Thorny Island or the Orkney Islands, where, when I was young, I visited, and they still spoke a, di a dialect of the old Danish. They still have a lot of strange words up in the Orkney Islands. I strongly recommend going there in the summer. Um, he didn't instead... Uh, his producer convinced him to go to a small island off of Gotland named Faro. And when he got to Faro, it was like me when I got to Graham Island in the Bay of Fundy. He like fell in love with it at first sight, like with a beautiful woman like Helen of Troy or Susan Schell. Um, and he basically never left there. So beginning at that point, he made two kinds of films. And this is a theoretical point I've tried to make from a different point of view earlier. Firstly, he made documentary films. Uh, Faro Document 1969, Faro Document 1979. And these document what life is like there. He shows people milking sheep. He shows people doing this and doing that. He shows people having sex. Bergman does that a lot in his movies. But they're not actors. They're real people. 
Of course, actors are real people. And his fiction movies set fictional stories on Faro itself over and over and over again. Twelve movies he made on this tiny island of, I don't know, 85 acres or something like that, so that he's experimenting, if you want, with making documentary films about a place, which is one kind of literary work, and making films on a place, as if Faro were a stage. So he's working Faro, the island. He never leaves there, um, hardly ever, except when he doesn't pay taxes. The Swedish government gets mad at him because he's not paying taxes. He says, I'm living on an island. I'm all by myself. I'm kind of a libertarian free spirit. Why should I pay taxes? Um, and so he goes to Germany, where he used to spend time when he was young. And there he makes a series of movies, always mostly always in the English language, trying to come to terms in some ways with his own past. If there were world enough and time now, and there isn't, I would look at one other thing. A minute and a half? I would look at what I would call the theme of psychosomatic illness in Bergman. If you've seen any Bergman movies, and I chose Bergman because he's like The Simpsons, only he's, you don't laugh at a Bergman. You know what I mean. Isn't Bergman a downer? God. So there's always somebody with an illness or a psychosomatic illness or someone who, is, who has cancer. There's always death, 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 death. All the time, death. And there's psychosomatic illness. It's the psychosomatic illness that I want to draw attention to because it is the geographic theme par excellence in this sense that what one is trying to do is locate the relationship between nature or the body the soma and culture or the psyche and if Kant is correct that that is where the definition of geography lies then the same must be true also of psychosomatic illness I don't mean by that mere hypochondria or hysteria, but rather something else, something to do with the conditioning of a place on people or of people on a place, which I like to think was the theme of my talk all along. So thank you very much.